We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I am your host, Alexandreou. The intelligence community was absolutely uniform and uniformly wrong about the existence of weapons of mass destruction, and they pushed that position. It is hard to deny the conclusion that intelligence analysts worked in an environment that did not encourage skepticism about the conventional wisdom. Those are the words of Judge Lawrence H. Silberman, co-author of the report on pre-war intelligence and weapons of mass destruction. My guest today, as we mark the 20th anniversary of the 2003 Iraq invasion is Bunker and Ogod, what now regular Arthur Snell. His credentials as a former diplomat are lengthy and intimidating, but what sets him apart from other commentators on this issue is that, having worked on the Iraq desk at the Foreign Office, he actually served in Iraq during the post-invasion reconstruction years. Welcome to the Bunker as a guest this time, Arthur Snell. Thank you, Alex. It's um, strange to be on the other side of the uh, podcast table, as it were. <laughs> Arthur, uh, Bush-lied people died, or the British variant, Blair-lied people died, is the simple summary refrain that bookends most discussion in this. Is it actually a pretty fair assessment of what went on? Well, actually, I'm I'm glad you started with that quote from the uh, review into intelligence. I think that was the US review, but the, the Chilquot inquiry made a similar judgment and uh, honed in on intelligence failures. And I think when I answer your question about did Blair and Bush lie, we have to look at what they were doing. And I'm not in any way here to defend either of those politicians, but they were both, by definition, at the head of a large government structure and both of them, you know, with Bush, with the CIA, Blair, with, with SIS, otherwise known as MI6, respectively, had access to what was widely regarded as some of the world's best intelligence. And their intelligence mm. agencies told them that there was WMD in Iraq and the extensive WMD and that various programs had been restarted by Saddam and so on. So the idea that they lied, I, I genuinely think, is not fair. They reported and shared publicly, you know, what they'd been told by their intelligence agents. More than that, does this oversimplification obscure maybe the real lessons that need to be learned? I mean, if, if the intelligence was that poor and oversight of it that inadequate, what has been done in the last 20 years to ensure that, you know, our politicians get a higher quality of data to inform their decisions and that those decisions are more robustly debated? I think that's a really key question. Now, we, we could sort of start with 2022, where one could argue that the US and UK intelligence communities had a good year in that they accurately predicted that uh, Vladimir Putin was planning to in, invade Ukraine, that he had plans for a military invasion. And in that particular case, there was a lot of skepticism, much of it driven by the Iraq experience. Uh, and and you could say, well, that shows that 
these issues, these problems have now been ironed out. The difficulty with this is, of course, that one, intelligence agencies, for reasons that are understandable, are very secretive. They don't mm. uh, like to share publicly what they do. Um, and again, one doesn't know whether they they got lucky this time on Ukraine and, and they were just unlucky on Iraq. What I would say, and I think, again, the Chilcot inquiry points to this, but also there's a, the Butler inquiry. I mean, there have been so many Iraq inquiries, it's easy to lose track. Butler was the earlier one, which looked specifically at the intelligence. What it seemed to identify was a kind of looseness uh, with the way intelligence was handled. So just to give a, a concrete example, when raw intelligence reports were arriving in the MI6 headquarters, the chief of MI6 at that time, Richard Dearlove, was basically grabbing these reports and running them over to Downing Street himself, putting them in front of Tony Blair. Now, mm. if we think about this question of intelligence analysts and, and, and the sort of judgments that they should be making, in a way, those people never even had a chance. Uh, this unfiltered, unvalidated intelligence was going straight from the source to the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, who was then being encouraged to make decisions on the basis of it. So I think some of this is to do with handling procedures. And I, I think it's, it's likely that that sort of stuff has been tightened up considerably. Hmm. There's a school of thought that uh, Bush Sr. had already made up his mind to invade Iraq, and that the intelligence community effectively wanted to please him by shoehorning what little facts they had into that narrative. Do the scrutinizing bodies like Congress in the States and Parliament over here get away a little bit scot-free from this? I mean, isn't it their job to ask hard questions and test the data? I think that that's right. Um, certainly in, in America, there definitely was an ideological group that was committed to the invasion of Iraq. And if we think, I, I wonder less about Bush himself, but certainly his acolytes, Cheney, Rumsfeld, Paul Wolfowitz, these neocons that saw this very unrealistic idea that you could transform the Middle East into a sort of thriving liberal democracy, but a, but a, a neoliberal democracy, effectively, um, and, and that you could do that by force of arms. Uh, and in a way, they, they didn't really care what the intelligence said, uh, because, because they already knew what answer they wanted. Um, mm -hmm. But yes, there, it's, it is the job of president, of an executive, of Congress, and certainly of parliament, and also the media. Let us not forget that very credible media outlets um, in, in the UK and, and, and in the US uh, bought the uh, intelligence line fairly uncritically. I mean, I'm reminded, and I speak as someone who admires The Economist, I think it's a very, very good publication, but they were very forcefully pro the Iraq war. So there, there was a lot of this kind of groupthink and uh, clustering around a set of predetermined conclusions. So there's an an alternative school of thought that I think is elegantly expressed by Evan Wright, who wrote uh, Generation Kill. And in that he says, and I quote, when it comes to apportioning shame, my vote goes to the American people who sent soldiers to war in a surge of emotion, but quickly lost the will to either win it or end it. Um, I don't completely subscribe to that, but I think it does make an interesting point um, that leaders can be conduits for a sort of public lust for uh, retribution. Was there a little bit of that going on? 
Yeah, definitely. And we, we mustn't forget the impact of the 9-11 attacks. You know, the, hmm. the, there is no country other than America that has faced in a single day such a catastrophic terrorist outrage in a major city, you know, the way that they experienced it. Now, of course, lots of countries have suffered in other ways. I'm, I'm not suggesting America's suffering is unique, but the specifics of it. There is no surprise that there was this sort of bloodlust afterwards. But of course, um, that, you could argue, was expiated by the military action in Afghanistan. And what is so bizarre about the Iraq war is that no one anywhere had any serious evidence that Iraq... Uh, was connected to 9/11, and and the, you know the one or two fringe figures on the U, on the U.S. side who, who tried to make this allegation, but even even George Bush didn't really go very far with it publicly because they all knew it wasn't it wasn't correct. So if you were going to in in a kind of you know slightly atavistic, almost primitive way, respond to this attack with a, a lashing out militarily, you could argue mm. that the appropriate target for that was Afghanistan, was Al-Qaeda, was the Al-Qaeda's protectors, the Taliban. And, and how Iraq sort of came into the sights is quite bizarre, really, because if, if, ultimately it, it was just a completely different objective and, and one that, that ultimately made failure in Afghanistan more likely because of all the resources that got sucked into Iraq. Yes, I think it's easy to strip what happened of its emotional context. But, you know, I remember the panic uh, I felt after 9-11 and the, the sort of sense of vulnerability that everyone yeah. felt. And and it's important to mention because, you know, if we ever find ourselves in a similar situation, it might be following a similarly emotive event. Uh, and my worry is that, you know, if if the debate was polarized 20 years ago, and anyone that uh, expressed doubts about it was shouted down as unpatriotic. I mean, imagine what would happen now, where all of those things have been amplified to the to the nth degree. Yeah. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Some say, Arthur, in fact, I think it was Blair's defense for years in the aftermath of, of admitting intelligence failures, that even absent WMDs, the invasion was justified and the world is a better place for the removal of Hussein. How does that argument hold up now, post-Syria, post-ISIS? Yeah, there are two ways to analyse this argument. One is on, on its legal merits. And ultimately, um, the... That you know the UN Charter does not permit countries to go and invade other countries because we don't like their leaders, and after all, that's exactly what Putin is doing to Ukraine. Now, of course, we uh, who are not subject to Russian propaganda look at Putin describing Zelensky as a fascist drug drug addict or whatever, and we, and, and we we shrug and say, well, this is madness. But ultimately, if the argument is that Saddam Hussein was a bad guy and therefore we should we should remove him we are in a very very troubling period 
for international relations. But but actually, then let's examine it on its own merits. I mean, as you mentioned at the outset, I, I worked on Iraq before the war and before 9-11, when the idea of an invasion would, would, have, would have seemed quite fanciful. And we all knew that Saddam Hussein was hideous, arguably the most ghastly global leader. Um, when the invasion of Iraq happened, knowing what I knew, although I was very, very uncomfortable about it, I found myself thinking, well, it'd be hard, you know, it'd be hard for the Iraqi people to be worse off than, than with Saddam Hussein. But actually, where we are now, I, I don't know if you can make that argument, because we're talking the the deaths in Iraq are in the hundreds of thousands. You know, it's hard mm. to see what Saddam Hussein was by the time of the invasion, I mean, he he had he to say he had moderated would would be the wrong term to use, but he was no longer the sort of bloodstained maniac that he had been in the eighties. So Iraq was by no means a happy place, but it was a place where, for example, religious freedom existed quite strongly. Um, you know, one of the tragedies of post-war Iraq is that what was a religiously diverse country has become increasingly uh, just two major blocks, Sunni and Shia, and the other minorities have have disappeared. So you know, either through extermination or or emigration. So so there are the losses, the the human losses, the cultural losses, the the rise of ISIS, the the the, the Syrian civil war, which which continues. Um, that there are so many long term effects of this war that that to keep saying, well, it was worth it to get rid of Saddam. I think if you're going to make that argument, you have to be prepared to say, at what point does that argument no longer hold? You know, wh what level of loss overwrites that argument? If we flip this sort of Rubik's Cube onto a different side, there's another argument, again, often trotted out in defense, that the USA was going in anyway. And the USA going in without allies, which it was determined to do, risked a much more gung-ho approach and a fracturing of Western alliances. Do you think there's any merit to that? I think that, that is quite a strong argument. And obviously, this is very relevant to Britain, because ultimately, yes, there were other countries in the initial stages. Interestingly, people forget that Australia and Poland were there right at the very beginning. But but the Brit Britain was there in, in, in largest numbers after the US. And, and um, that decision has had such impact on our own politics. Hmm. One remembers Donald Rumsfeld was very dismissive of coalitions. Um, but I think Having Britain there in particular gave the Americans a lot of unjustified moral force. And of course, Britain invested a lot of effort in seeking UN uh, approval for the invasion, which it didn't succeed in doing. Well, this is debated, but I mean, I think most people would agree that there was not a, a UN, UN approval. Yeah. And, and there's an argument that, yeah, Britain moderated what the Americans were doing. Well, what I, what I can say to that is if you listen to... Uh, Rory Stewart talking with Alistair Campbell on their podcast recently. And, and of course, Rory was there literally in the first days after the invasion in that weird kind of colonial government that the Americans set up. It's very clear that the Brits had no moderating influence, that the Americans had a hardline ideological agenda. I mean, Rory mentioned, fascinatingly, one of the things they were doing was shutting down Iraq's trade unions. Now, yeah. no one was standing up and saying what Iraq needs is the abolition of trade unions in order that it becomes a free place and, and a democracy. So, so you had this weird ideological crusade that was being pursued by the neocons. And, and I think it's very hard to argue that the Brits had any serious um, impact on, on moderating that. And on that, I wanted to ask you, is there, was there a sense of hubris in the West at the time, a belief that 
not just democracy, but our particular brand of capitalist democracy was not only the best, but eminently exportable and capable of making populations happy even when imposed. Yes, definitely. And I write about this in my book, How Britain Broke the World. And the reference point here that I think is relevant is what happened in Kosovo in 1999. Now, people who are uh, familiar with the intricacies of Southeastern Europe politics will know that the, the Kosovo intervention was not uncomplicated. But seen from London and Washington, it looked like a, a very simple story where the good guys went in, rescued the Kosovo Albanians, and instituted democracy. And this was a post-Cold War, the end of history, people remember that, that there was only one future for the world. And that future mm. was liberal capitalism. Uh, and you would ideally have it imposed by the local population. But if necessary, you could impose it by force from the outside. And of course, Blair's famous speech in Chicago, to some extent, paves the way for, for this kind of thing. So the, yes, the West was hugely hubristic up until the financial crisis of 2008. There was this belief that, that we'd kind of solved all the arguments, the economic arguments, the political arguments. And ultimately, there was just a one-way conveyor belt where we would move towards this vision of, of a kind of liberal uh, or maybe even libertarian capitalist model. And of course, mm. the financial crisis, the failure in Iraq, the, the, the later failure in Afghanistan, failures in Libya, you know, that we now look at that era and it feels hopelessly hubristic. But I think at the time, this was quite a world, widely held view. Yeah. There is a basic problem here, isn't there, Arthur, that on such matters, the government basically is forced to say, both to Congress in the States or Parliament here and to voters in general, look, we know much more than we can reveal. So you just have to trust us on this. Can we begin to calculate the long-term damage that the, the Iraq war has done to that trust, which is really fundamental to our security? I agree. The failure of the government to appear to be telling the truth on such an important issue, I think it, there's fundamental loss of confidence. And I think both in America, you know, you see the rise of Donald Trump, these outsiders who say they're going to sort of drain the swamp and so on. And, you know, interestingly, Trump, Trump is highly critical of the Iraq war, although he comes from this, this very sort of um, conservative perspective. And in here in the UK, you know, people lost confidence that the government was telling them the truth. I think a lot of that loss of confidence played into the, the Brexit vote, this idea that, mm. again, we've seen in the last 12 months the government do a lot of this again. And when I say this, I'm talking about releasing sensitive intelligence into the public domain. And both the US and the UK have been doing this on Ukraine. And in some senses, I think it's there is a, a conscious attempt to try to regain some of that trust. And it may be working because it, it appears that a, a lot of that material proves correct. But ultimately, if we go back to 2003 or 2002, run up to the war and then 2003, the, the British government, they weren't just saying you have to trust us. They were saying, no, here's the stuff. You know, we've declassified it. Here's this exciting dossier with all this interesting yeah. information. And of course, the information proved to be bogus. Hmm. I don't know if you agree with me. Just by looking at the coverage of the anniversary stateside versus the coverage of it here in this country, it just seems to me to be a much bigger deal in the UK 
than the than the states. Is that because America is generally more bellicose? Is it down to the personalities in charge at the time? Do we have different expectations of hawkish Republican presidents as opposed to Labour PMs? I wonder whether it has something to do with what's happened to the Republican Party itself in, in that the Republican establishment, as you know, many of us have, have followed, you know, they've been destroyed by the Trump insurgency, if you like. And, and you effectively have the ones who've, who've accepted humiliation by Trump and have sort of sucked it up or the ones who are these kind of never-Trumpers who are basically in political exile. And quite a lot of the never-Trumpers are the descendants of that sort of George W. Bush neocon era. So, so it may be that the people who are most associated with the Iraq war in, in America are seen as, as kind of yesterday's men. Whereas I think in this country, it's, you know, Tony Blair is still a very influential person who, if he makes a speech on domestic politics, it, it will be a headline news. Political scientist Robert Wright writes that, uh, and I quote, the near hysteria that pervaded American discourse about Saddam Hussein in 2002 and early 2003 has echoes in current discourse about China. Is there a danger that politicians tend to create these narratives and then effectively make them come true? I think there is a danger there, although, of course, uh, where that analogy, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that Wright isn't aware of this, but where that analogy has its limits is that China is unambiguously an e extremely important superpower. What was so extraordinary about the Iraq war was that, that Saddam was built up into this terrifying figure. And we were told that the Iraqi army was, the I think it was the fourth largest in the world. And of course, he had this arsenal of terrifying weapons um, and so on and so forth. And basically, the, Iraqs, the Iraqi state had been completely hollowed out. The, the army barely fired mm. a shot in the invasion phase of, of the Iraq war. You know, what cost most US and UK and other coalition lives, and of course the lives of Iraqis, was the civil war that followed, not the invasion itself. Whereas I think, you know, with China, we are looking at a very, very serious adversary. But I, I agree that there is a sort of hysteria where you you almost talk yourself into confrontation. And, and there is a risk with that with China. Um, I, I read your Substack uh, post on the anniversary. It's really beautiful. And I would advise people to go and read it in full. Um, I was struck by your words, we weren't willing to give the UN inspectors time to do their jobs, even though what they were doing was vital. The Iraq war circumvented international bodies and processes, basically, that the White House saw as slow and ineffective and getting in the way. But I'm mindful of the fact that since then, those processes have become, if anything, even slower and less effective. Do we, is the solution actually a fundamental reimagining of those international institutions charged with keeping the peace? Yes, I, I think it is. Um, clearly, the, the UN was, was seriously weakened by the Iraq war. And I think particularly by, by Britain's position, because ultimately, a superpower such as America, or really America was a hyperpower in 2003, it had no peer. And it's sort of unreasonable to expect the hyperpower to be tied down by an institution such as the UN. But Britain, Britain's entire global status 
rests very heavily on it remaining a permanent member of the UN Security Council, which you could mm. argue is, is now anachronistic. And yet what we said in 2003 to the world was, well, the UN is terribly important. We must get a second resolution. And then when we didn't get one, we said, oh, no, the UN is not terribly important. It doesn't matter, really. And as you rightly say, it's gone downhill since then. And, and particularly the, the Syria conflict has had with Russia and China. So I'm, I'm definitely not excluding them from the blame. Russia and China has completely undermined the effectiveness of the Security Council with their, their constant vetoes on any type yeah. of action to, to limit Assad. Um, but a couple of things, just sort of smidgens of potential hope. It, in 2011, Russia did vote with uh, Western countries to take action, uh, and that was on Libya. Now, the subsequent action became controversial, and, and Russia argued that that Western countries, particularly US, France and UK, had sort of exceeded their brief and had gone beyond yeah. what, was, what was agreed. But the point was, an agreement was reached. And that's 2011. So it's not that long ago. But I think, yes, we need completely different structures. And of course, uh, the challenge with these things is that it's very hard to establish something that has binding force when you have powerful countries that don't want to be bound, particularly China, China, Russia and, and, the, and the US in particular. One of the things that has been debated in, in sort of international fora is this idea of an actually less formal group, a sort of international concert, they call it, which is literally a sort of informal grouping of the great powers of the world, a rather 19th century idea. But I think it has some appeal to it because it's the sort of thing that if you can create the kind of forum where countries and their leaders want to be present, that creates a kind of momentum and dynamic, then that forum develops its own uh, momentum and its own power. And the problem with the UN at the moment is that it feels as though the UN is no longer relevant on these sorts of questions. I'm not saying it's not relevant yeah. on, on other issues. So I, I do wonder whether something else is needed. Um, but it is very difficult. And and of course, you have, you've got rising powers, particularly India. You know, India should be, if there is some kind of global decision-making body, India should certainly be in it. And of course, the European Union as a body should be represented, whereas at the moment, France is a, is a single veto-wielding power on the UNSC and, and Britain, mm -hmm. you know, obviously we, we've gone our own way there. So um, th there are lots of inadequacies in the current structures, definitely. Yeah. Finally, the, the other thing that comes through very clearly is that the, the trauma is still fresh. And there's a sort of personal sense of shame um, that you describe in your post. D do you think that shame is shared further up the political, intelligence, military ladder? And, and is it a useful emotion? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm sure that, you know, the therapists would say that shame is, is not very useful. But I think taking responsibility and, and, and taking on board the enormity of what has happened. You know, there are people, there are thoughtful people, as it happens, um, somebody I know who was, was a very senior military commander in, in the special forces contacted me and, and said that he'd agreed with what I'd written. Um, and and I know that there are lots of people, you know, much sort of further up the tree who, who hold these views, but there are others who seem to be unashamed. And I've heard interviews and frankly, I, I find it extraordinary that they cling to these justifications for, for what have happened. Hmm. Maybe it's a psychological defense, you know, to excuse yourself and find the justification for what happened. I think that's right. And certainly if you look at Blair himself, I, I'll never forget his demeanor in, in the press conference, which he gave just, I think it was just as the Chilcot report came out. And 
he stood by his decisions, but his tone of voice, his sort of ashen face, you you couldn't but think this is a man who is mm. deeply tortured by what he's done. But there are others who don't seem remotely tortured by it, who, who seem to be pretty cool with it. And and those are the ones that I, I find it quite hard to understand. Arthur Snell, thank you so much um, for your time and for making me wiser on a daily basis. Alex, it's my privilege. Thank you. Remember, there's a new bunker pretty much every day. So if you like our work, you can and should support our work on the funding platform Patreon for as little as £3 a month. Just search Bunker Podcast Patreon. I leave you with the words of Seth Moulton, uh, a Democrat congressman and an Iraq war veteran. The worst days of my life were in Iraq and the best days were there too. My fondest memories of the Iraq war are those of the people, both Americans and Iraqis, and the opportunity we saw in one another for our countries. This is Alexandreou in the bunker saying over and out. Does what's going on in the American election scare and bemuse you in equal measure? Want to know what Biden and Trump are up to without tearing your hair out? Then you need to listen to American Friction, the brand new podcast about the countdown to the big vote in November from the makers of Oh God, What Now, The Bunker and Paper Cuts. Every Friday, we'll speak to leading experts and blockbuster commentators from the United States to explain the latest news and the big issues behind the vote. That's American Friction with me, Jacob Jarvis. Me, Chris Jones. And me, Nikki McCann Ramirez. Out every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. The Bunker was presented by Alex Andrei. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis. Group editor, Andrew Harrison. Audio productions by me, Robin Lieber. And the theme tune is by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.